MSW Media. This week, the Washington Post reported that Donald Trump routinely inflated his net worth to lenders and investors, and both Capitol Hill and the Southern District of New York are investigating whether these exaggerations and misrepresentations may have crossed the line into fraud. How do prosecutors follow the money when investigating financial crimes? And what does President Trump have to worry about even after special counsel Robert Mueller has wound down his investigation into Russian collusion? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Asha Rangaba, and I am a former FBI agent, a lecturer at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, and a CNN legal and national security analyst. And I'm joined by Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host, who is a regular part of this podcast. I am guest hosting this week for the show's regular host, Renato Mariotti, who is preparing for a jury trial this week. So, Patty, <laughs> this... <laughs> there's a lot here. I, I, I know I've been following uh, your followers on Twitter who obviously wanted so much more from the Mueller report and, you know, are looking for things in the bar summary. But I think a lot of people are, are wondering, why are we talking about financials now? Wouldn't we have known about so much of these uh, sort of uh, you know, inflated numbers before this week? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, you know, our guest this week is Shanlin Wu. He's a former federal prosecutor who focuses on white collar cases. And that's, you know, one of the questions that I want to ask him, um, you know, that Trump has been so high profile. And, uh, you know, I think people are confused about why this is all coming out now. But, you know, I think that one thing that people who have been disappointed by Mueller's report or our book report, as I call it, on the Mueller report, um, you know, remember, Patty, this was the red line that Trump did not want Mueller to cross. And so what, you know, even while he was saying no collusion, it seemed like what Trump was most worried about was anybody getting into his accounting books. And that makes sense. You know, I mean, we've wanted it for a long time. It was always surprising how much weight he was given in not turning over his his tax returns, don't you think? Yes, I believe he was the first president since Jimmy Carter to not do that, which I I consider that red flaggy. I mean, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I'm just a former FBI agent, but um, that's usually uh, a clue. Um, But you know, one of I, I do want to know. I mean, w- did Mueller ever get his tax returns? And um, would the Southern District have them now? Would the New York uh, Attorney General have them now? Because we know that there are a number of investigations that are going to keep going uh, and have nothing to do with Mueller and and his you know final report. Well, Asha, I'm wondering what has your week been like? I know that this is something that you've been talking about in depth. Uh, for several years, whether it was the Russia investigation or, you know, sort of the financial questions that people have. What what have what have you been surprised by the most this week? Well, I have been surprised that 
you know, William Barr with regard to his book report, like was so it was in such a rush to get something out uh, on what was what appears to be a 400 page report, not even including the exhibits. And um, it looks like he's walking that back. So, you know, I think that's what's really taken our attention. But I think what's been in the background is what is behind Trump's finances. And the reason that this is important, it's actually relevant to what Mueller was investigating, even if he didn't look into it himself, is that, you know, I I was a counterintelligence agent. Um, I monitored foreign intelligence activity in the United States. And one thing that intelligence services love is people who have financial issues, um, because that's somewhere where they can come in and offer incentives and lead people down the road that then they can you know, have some leverage over them. And so it kind of, you know, the, the financial questions that we're going to have today kind of ties together uh, some some different threads. Um, why didn't Trump, you know, release his tax returns? Is it because they reveal anything, not just about illegal activity, but potentially uh, obligations to Russia? Um, you know, what could those leverages be? Uh, and, you know, and then I think th those to me are the primary ones because those get to national security. But then, of course, what criminal liability does he have? Right. So it does sound as though the possibility of this continuing to be sort of a counterintelligence investigation will uh, carry on. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, look, I think that the counterintelligence piece on Russia is going to always continue. I mean, the FBI will right. always be monitoring them. But I think that to understand you know, perhaps where is Trump flailing financially and who's been bailing him out? Um, I think that's what some of these uh, financial investigations are going to reveal, because if he's been, you know, inflating his wealth and he's he's actually not doing as well as as he claims to be, then we need to wonder, you know, who's been the sugar daddy. Right. <laughs> and that can lead to an entirely Daddy different investigation is my as well. guess, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, is that it sounds as though there have been investigations even prior to his run for the presidency and whether or not there were ties, whether they were uh, mob ties in the United States or in Russia. Is that your understanding as well? Well, I'm not I'm not sure about that. What do you mean exactly? I mean, there there have been, you know, articles about investigations before he even ran for the presidency and whether or not there was money being laundered, uh, you know, or if he had ties to the mob in New York. Had Are you familiar with any of those articles? I'm not. I mean, my understanding is that, you know, he really wasn't on the direct radar. I mean, perhaps peripherally, but that, you know, really that, you know, some of these investigations are starting to dig in for the first time. So we know, for example, the New York Attorney General started looking into the Trump Foundation. Um, that was a civil investigation and resulted in the foundation being dissolved. And I think some of those are now creeping into, uh, you know, these criminal investigations, um, the, the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, the Michael Cohen uh, you know, what what he's been reveal, revealing or has provided. Um, my understanding was that these were the first times that they were really kind of opening cases. But um, I maybe I just missed the, the, the other reporting about <laughs> mob ties. 
Right. And, and there were there were I think there were sort of, um, you know, rumblings about it. But there also was the, the piece in The New York Times, you know, that we've all kind of, uh, you know, it gets swamped by so many stories. Don't you get that sense? You know, when you know there were these ideas that uh, what his, uh, you know, claims were on his tax returns going years back. But something else comes along to sort of knock that out of the headlines. And, and yes. so we are overwhelmed by so many different, uh, you know, avenues of questions, don't you think? I think so. And, you know, to go to your earlier point, I mean, I do think that there will there is possibly a convergence in terms of if they've been following, say, you know, Russian money laundering, I can definitely see that it could intersect uh you know, with Trump properties and things like that. Um, and again, that's going to be some ways in which these different Venn diagrams that we have of different investigations may kind of converge on each other. What gets your attention the most when it comes to investigating somebody in white collar crimes? Is, is there anything here that that sort of reflects on something maybe you've done in the past that has uh, come under your radar? Well, this is why I'm so excited to talk to Shan Wu, because I did counterintelligence investigations. And I, I try to emphasize to people that these are different than criminal investigations. And, you know, FBI agents, you know, it's kind of like any other and, and lawyers. It's it's like any other profession, you know, like doctors. I mean, you know, if a doctor is a dermatologist, they might know some general things about surgery. But if you really want to know about brain surgery, you're going to talk to a brain surgeon. Um, so, you know, I think someone who's done white collar crime like Shan Wu will be able to really get us into the weeds um, because, you know, I my impression, again, having not done white collar and financial crime investigations myself, is that once the once the feds start following the money, they will keep going until they find out where it leads. Um, and so I want to get some insight into uh, exactly how that happened and where it could go for President Trump. Which goes back to your, your statement earlier about how, you know, the fact that the FBI isn't going to let this go has been part of what keeps Trump just tweeting at three and four and five in the morning. Yeah. 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 I, I think that this is going to be probably his, uh, as I said earlier this week on CNN, he said Trump's got 99 problems. Um, and I and when he was commenting on the Jesse Smollett case, he says Smollett isn't one of them, but I think this one is. So maybe we should try to give uh, Shan a call and get him on. Sounds great. So welcome to the show. We have Shan Wu here. He is a former federal prosecutor and also the former counsel to former Attorney General Janet Reno. Thanks so much for being here, Shan. Oh, happy to be here. Great. We are going to use you as our guide uh, into the world of Trump's finances, which, you know, hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the last two years just because we've been so focused on the Mueller investigation, which has primarily been about collusion and obstruction. Um, right. But I think... I want to get, because I think this is a question that a lot of listeners have, and it's been something that I've been asked, and I kind of give my general view that this is I, this was not my area when I was in the FBI. You know, people wonder, why is this only coming on 
the radar of the feds now? Like, how did he get away with this for so long? And, you know, he's been a high profile person. He's had these bankruptcies and other things that have made the news since, you know, he was in his 30s, 40s. So I guess how do financial crimes get on the radar of the feds um, to begin with? And and why why wouldn't this have gotten some momentum well before he ran for president? I think one of the main reasons that it's come on the radar for the feds is frankly the the higher profile. <laughs> you have a higher profile as president of the United States than you do as a uh, well known uh, entrepreneur. And I think from your own experience, Asha and FBI, you'll you'll find of course that oftentimes you get tips from people. And in this case, I don't think in his orbit of business, there is anybody particularly interested in being a whistleblower or coming forward with a tip. And with regard to the people he's doing business with, banks and such that are making him loans based on these now somewhat suspicious looking financial statements, they are also not interested in really going after anybody for fraud uh, if they are regularly doing business with the people. So I think with this type of situation where your business or a company is getting a lot of loans and then later it comes to light that there's uh, fraudulent misstatements in it, that's really only going to come to light if you get some kind of an insider or perhaps, you know, a person dealing with them in a contract or a consumer wants to come forward and say, hey, there's something that doesn't look right here. And of course, in this situation now, we know that there are insiders who have come forward. That's right. And I think also we've had, you know, reporters who have started doing a lot of digging. Um, it seems like, for example, uh, the New York Attorney General started looking into the Trump Foundation or at least it coincided with some reporting, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, by the Washington Post that, you know, there was some shenanigans going on um, with the Trump Foundation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been just amazed at the tenacity and the deep drilling that the investigative reporters have done. I mean, I, in some of the questions that I've been asked, I mean, I, I just feel like they've become such subject matter experts uh, on the entire Trump situation and Mueller and the finances. It's really uh, an amazing job of investigation that they've done. Yeah. So I I want to actually talk about some of the reporting that, you know, we've seen um, and a little trip down memory lane. Um, <clears throat> I want to get to the, the latest uh, reporting with The Washington Post. But before that, you know, there was a New York Times story um, during the summer, I believe, or maybe in the fall um, that barely made a blip on the news. Um, and it was quite astonishing because it was a long expose about how the Trump family built its wealth. And, you know, right. I recommend that everybody read it, but I, I generally the, the thrust of it was that it explained how Fred Trump engaged in a variety of sketchy tax schemes um, to transfer over a billion dollars in wealth to his kids without mm -hmm. paying all of the gift and estate taxes. Um, so I'm curious, like just, you know, what what is the statute of limitations on things like tax fraud or tax evasion and how how would what Trump's parents did um, to the extent that they knew about it affect them now or in, in particular Trump now like in other words 
does he care about all of that reporting that has come out? Right. So the first, the, the technical answer is I'm not exactly sure what the uh, statute of limitations is on different types of tax fraud, such as underreporting versus uh, an actual fraud being perpetrated. Generally speaking, with all statutes of limitations, the way that you get them practically extended is a question of how far back the uh, fraud was discovered. And most importantly with fraud is whether it's ongoing. So oftentimes in fraud cases, even though the fraud might have occurred um, before the statute would have run, meaning too long ago, if the fraud continues to be an ongoing fraud, uh, you can still go after it. And that's true both in civil contract uh, cases as well as in criminal cases. In this instance, uh, my speculation is that I don't think they'd be able to go back and pursue any actual tax fraud type cases from that historical period. Uh, for one thing, I'm not a tax expert, but in terms of the evading the gift tax issue, that, that's probably a bit too dated for that. But I think what did happen from that is it caused people to, and I remember that article very well. I mean, I was astonished at how comprehensive it was. It really caused people, including, I believe, the New York State authorities, as well as the feds, to really start taking a look at his finances. And, you know, in many ways, we hear on a daily basis, you know, how upset Trump is, how he feels there's you know, improper presidential harassment going on. And, and one can see why he has become so angry because of these types of exposés, things that he would have expected to be long hidden and would never be exposed are indeed coming to light. So I think the particular tax issues probably are too historical, but there's a really big question as to what the ongoing types of fraud are. Yeah. And you mentioned that they may have caused, um, you know, prosecutors or or uh, either the state or the feds to start looking into it. Um, so what does that look like? How do, how do uh, these entities follow the money? Like, does it kind of, they get this kind of, uh, they get the spidey sense or the reasonable suspicion uh, and to, you know, that, that, that there may be criminal activity going on. And then does it just, do you just start with subpoenas and, and start getting records? Because I guess one thing about financial crimes is that, you know, everything's going to be on paper almost. Yes, exactly. And so typically that is how you would commence it is uh, the prosecutor through the grand jury would issue subpoenas seeking financial records and they seek them from the banks. And a key point here is that the recipient of the subpoenas, the banks, usually also are requested to keep this secret from the account holder. And every few months or so, that request is renewed to keep it secret from the account holder. And that's how people can be targeted for criminal investigation. The feds already have their bank records and such, and they're not aware of that. So they will seek it from the institutions themselves. And then the various investigators, and sometimes there are a lot of the FBI agents, as you know, or IRS agents obviously already have a lot of the financial expertise to basically mm -hmm. conduct an audit of those records. But then in other cases, they'll actually use people who are actual auditors to go over it as well. So, so that's the first step. And they take a look at that. 
And then they might begin the process of actually speaking to people uh, about that. Okay. And what about on what about internally? How how on what basis and how easy is it for once you know a case like this gets or a case gets rolling i won't say like this because we're not exactly sure what um right. is being investigated but um can we assume that either uh the feds or the state uh of new york for example has trump's tax returns how, how, when, at what level or what point would, would that come about? Is that also just a simple subpoena or does it need to reach some kind of threshold to get to that information? Uh, well, the, uh, the tax records themselves are a little bit more um, cumbersome to get and you have to kind of jump through more hoops to get someone's actual tax returns. Now, now the IRS, of course, can basically do the audit but for the grand jury to subpoena people's tax records, particularly if you're talking about a political figure or, or the president's, that's going to require a little bit of a higher um, level of sign-off for that. The bank records, though, and the financial statements that were submitted to the bank would not require that level of scrutiny, would, would be sort of a commonplace uh, place to go. And from the published reports we're seeing, I think the the hook that they would have is what would what they're interested in really is it appears that the amounts inflate and deflate uh, in a way that doesn't really seem like it's explainable. I mean, it, it's it's one thing when you may have a difference in a very large property like a golf club's valuation of a few hundred thousand or, or even a million. But I mean, the amounts that we're hearing about how it goes up and down, depending on what purpose he's submitting it for, that's going to be a red flag if he's submitting that. And they won't necessarily even need to look at the tax returns for that because there are other documents that right. they can look at. Uh, uh, so while it's possible they have the tax returns, I don't know that they would even need to go there first. Okay. I and so that, I have a quick question. I have a quick question about that before we go on because uh, yeah. someone pointed out is is inflating or deflating your uh, wealth or you know what you want the bank to know about is that illegal in itself or is it kind of just a box that somebody checks you know and the bank just go, you know assumes that it's correct until unless they're later uh, you know alerted to it being erroneous. Yeah, can I just right. uh, jump on that, Patty, real quick, just yeah. for yeah. our listeners that, so this is great because it's bringing us right to the reporting uh, that came out this week, uh, which is that um, about how Trump was uh, inflating the value of his assets to lenders and insurers, but these were on, I think they were called unofficial statements of financial condition, and they were produced with the help of Trump's accountants with all kinds of caveats. Um so that's kind of the background, and I, I had the same question as Patty. What what kind of legal liability is here? Well, we've heard that phrase, the devil is in the details, and here uh, the devil is in the caveats. <laughs> so it, it would depend on the wording of the caveats and uh, ultimately what those accountants are going to say about it. Generally speaking, in answer to your question, Patty, it's not a crime to lie about your wealth if you're inflating it to Forbes to get on their you know, top five list. Uh, it becomes a crime, however, if you lie about, to the, lie about it to the IRS, as we all know, and it can become a crime if you lie about it on a document that a financial institution relies upon 
and then it becomes a material misrepresentation. Now, it's interesting that they talk about these were, quote, informal statements, and there are lots of caveats, because the usual defense to tax fraud, the usual defense to some sort of financial bank fraud, financial institution fraud, is going to be an argument that this was based on the advice of my accountants, that this is uh, an accounting dispute, different experts will disagree on that. And that's what his accountants, it sounds like, were being careful to couch it as informal estimates. You can't hold him to that. Now, at a certain point, he's going to be held to that, or the organization's going to be held to that, because the bank has to rely on something eventually, and the bank is going to be able to point that these were the statements you put forward, these are the worth of the property you put forward, and that we were entitled to rely upon that. Does that meet a threshold for criminality versus some sort of civil problem with the bank? That's something within the prosecutor's discretion. But one of the really critical points for the entire Trump organization is that their chief financial officer is apparently cooperating. And when you add that to what this we've is Alan heard, Weis um, Weisselberg, right? Exactly, right. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a enormous uh, problem uh, if you're going to mount a accountant defense type uh, defense, because if you have the chief financial officer saying, you know, we knew that this was wrong, we were doing it for this purpose to inflate things, that's going to be, you know, quite a, a damaging blow for a defense there. And you do see that in a lot of financial fraud situations where the initial defense is quite naturally, well, my accountant said that that was okay. And then when the accountant gets interviewed, they are afraid of being prosecuted for false statements. And they come clean and say, no, you know, I, I knew that was wrong. We fabricated that. And that's really going to be how things begin to unravel. Okay. And when we talk about the Trump organization, in, in terms of the people who are, you know, who ought to be worried, let's say, um, I mean, we know, you know, Donald Trump, um, because he, he owns the company. What about his kids? I mean, how, how did they play into this? And, you know, I mean, I know they were, uh, on the board of the foundation, for example. So they were, um, you know, named, I think, in that civil suit. And of course, that was a civil suit and that foundation was dissolved. But mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to the organization, when it comes to, you know, criminal uh, exposure, where do they fall? It, it very much depends on what their particular involvement was. When you're talking about prosecuting corporations and, and you know, by, by relative standards, this is a small corporation, not a really giant one. Usually, the larger the corporation, the more they tend to want to blame uh, individual executives as having gone rogue, uh, and, and that's what caused this fraud to happen. You, you'll see a lot of that in the, the traders, the stock trader cases, where they'll say that this person just you know, went rogue, I mean, this was not the institution, because they're very concerned with the company or the institution being hit uh, with a criminal charge itself. So they'll usually hang people off the dry. Now, when you have a small family business, which is really what this is, that's a very different picture. In that situation, the organization is highly unlikely to hang out the family members to dry. They're going to circle the wagons and all stick together. Mm -hmm. So 
whether or not you can make it stick on a particular person is very much going to depend on who is signing the checks, who is signing the statements, who the accountants were speaking to, and who is really directing that. So unquestionably, the family members would have criminal exposure. Again, just from published press accounts, it, it kind of seems like the president himself tended to be very much of a micromanager on these things and would not necessarily delegate a lot of the financial decisions. That's speculation. If that's the case, they might be able to say, look, the children were essentially the figureheads. They showed up for work. They weren't really in the weeds on the financial issues, so you wouldn't go after them financially. And conversely, they might not have that much value as witnesses either because it would just be like, I showed up at my job and you know collected my check. Kind of the, the question is who was really there on a day-to-day basis making the financial decisions, saying this value is right, this is too high, that sort of thing. And for, again, from the press reports, that sounds like that would be the president, not someone else. Yeah, and and here that's that's Shan, where uh, Alan Weisselberg would be a major witness to be able to speak to things like that, and and also I assume Michael Cohen to some degree if he's able to offer insight into. Who knew what when, I guess. Oh, very much so, yes. So Weisselberg, uh, I mean, that would be enough to make a defense counsel break into a cold sweat, the idea that they have Weisselberg. And uh, although I'm not entirely clear on what kind of immunity he was given, he was given some type of immunity, and that really bodes very poorly. And, yeah, so for our listeners again, um, we know that Alan Weisselberg was – talking to the Southern District of New York on the Stormy Daniels hush money payments um, and that he got some kind of limited immunity. Um, but we, what you're saying, Shan, is we don't know how much of that went beyond the hush money payments into other things or what kind of immunity that is. What Can you break that down for us? Sure. Um- the immunity question, when you have a client and you want immunity for them, like all defense counsel want immunity for their clients, the, the negotiation with the prosecutors is going to be over the scope of the immunity. So you can have a limited immunity for just one particular case. Uh, you can have a broader one which crosses cases. What we always hear about in crime prosecutions is this idea that they have a shield against any bad thing they've ever done. That's very, very rare to have that type of immunity given. And so even if Weisselberg was given a limited scope of immunity, certainly one condition of that is going to be that you cannot lie about anything or try to mislead about anything that we ask you about. So that's something that his lawyers would have to hammer out very, very carefully and the prosecutor, when I was a prosecutor, I'm very, very rarely inclined to want to give immunity. First of all, you have to give me a lot for my immunity. You have to be really, really valuable. And second of all, I'm going to be very conscious of how being given any kind of a deal looks bad in front of a jury. I mean, you look at the public reports of how the Manafort trial in Virginia went when Rick Gates testified, and I'm not basing this on anything in terms of inside information, just what you've read from what the jurors reacted. The mere fact that a cooperator like Gates was given a plea deal oftentimes makes the jury very skeptical of their testimony. That's exponentially worse 
when the person has been given immunity because then the defense will really go to town and say, look, yeah, this person can't get in trouble for anything that, that they do. Right. So don't, don't believe anything they're saying. So the, the scope of the immunity varies a lot, um, but it's a very, very carefully negotiated uh, contract, basically, between the prosecutors and defense counsel. Got it. Um, so this kind of brings us to uh, kind of a more macro question. Um, you know, as far as the Stormy Daniels hush money payments, possibly, you know, Trump organization stuff, we know the Southern District of New York uh, would would be doing that. Um, there, there could be New York Attorney General uh, looking into things that have out of the Trump Foundation and, and maybe criminal threads there. Um, what does Trump have to worry about most? In other words, um, you know, I think the public has just been looking at Mueller, Mueller, Mueller. Uh, do you think that in many ways the Southern District could potentially be more of a worry for Trump? Because they're not constrained by the kind of mandate that uh, that Mueller had. Um, of looking into specific things. Um, what what are your thoughts on that? And then, you know, relatedly, how how much can Maine justice cabin their inquiries or investigations? Uh, I think the Southern District is uh, very worrisome for the reasons that, that you just gave, which is that they did not have such a limited mandate. Uh, and also, the, the Southern District is very well known for being a very independent district. One of the jokes about them is they're the sovereign district of, of New York. And, uh, you know, Robert Mueller, having worked with him at the U.S. Attorney's Office back when he was homicide chief, he's a very stay-in-the-lane kind of person, very buttoned up. He's not looking to make law or make headlines. So he's really going to have just stayed very focused on the mission. The Southern District prosecutors are going to feel more uh, at at ease to range a little bit just to follow things where they go without having to worry about is this going to be seen as an overly political type of investigation. So for that reason, I think they are more dangerous because they are going to have a more free-ranging type of investigation. In terms of the things he has to worry about the most, uh, I, I certainly think the campaign finance uh, case is sort of a no-brainer case on this. So you certainly got to worry about that. These sorts of valuations with the bank fraud potential, that would be worrisome to me because it seems like really big discrepancies in the way that the properties are being treated. I mean, you really see an echo of that in the Paul Manafort fraud case. Right, I'm, exactly. You know, I'm, not, I'm not, right? It's the same type of inflation and deflation is going on. And you also see a hint of that in what Cohen was talking about, what he had done in his own tax situations. And so, you know, you, you get a little bit of sense that this was the corporate culture <laughs> yeah, that these, these folks are all doing this. <laughs> and it seems like to give the Manafort analogy, that that is where the tax returns would be relevant because uh, I believe Manafort was inflating the value of his assets for purposes of getting loans um, right. and then deflating them on his taxes for the purpose of paying less taxes. Um, and so sure. these were kind yep. of two sides of the same coin um, that were going on. So in, in other words, you, you know, if, if you have one, it's, you, it, it's helpful to compare the other and see what was being officially declared on tax return, for example. 
Right. And, and of course, the defense that, you know, Trump's lawyers will make is similar to, I think, what Manafort said. And it's a common sense defense, which is, you know, everybody kind of wants to do that. I mean, you know, you want your assets to be valued more highly, but you'd like to pay less taxes. The, the key is that you can't actually lie about it. Uh, there are legitimate ways of valuing things. For example, something that everybody understands is in real estate appraisals, typically the county appraisal, which you actually have to pay taxes on, tends to be lower than the so-called market value mm-hmm. of a house. And you know that's a legitimate discrepancy and it's perfectly valid. And you will see defense lawyers in financial fraud cases make that same analogy, which is there really is room to disagree on some of the valuations. I think the problem where you find the criminal aspect of it is when one, the disagreement is enormous, it's varying by the millions of dollars, and two, the disagreement or the discrepancy seems completely within the control of the defendant, meaning whenever I want it to go up, it goes up, whenever I want it to go down, it goes down, and, and that's mm-hmm. what really makes it become very suspect. Yeah. And, and I, I know that Asha mentioned this, which was the hush payments, and whether or not he claimed, whether or not Trump claimed those payments as business expenses, is that tax fraud then, I would assume, reflecting what you just said. <laughs> you just decide what you know money is used for in some sort of arbitrary way. Yeah, that would be tax fraud. Yeah, I'm not sure if that one, you know, as a complete standalone, I mean, as a prosecutor looking at it as a financial crime, that honestly, to me, resounds a little bit more universe of IRS audit. You mischaracterize this as a business expense when it was not, as opposed to being a criminal effort at tax evasion. Also, the numbers there are, you know, for us, that's a huge number in terms of what they're paying people. But when you look at that versus going up and down by the millions and getting loans in the hundreds of millions, those are the ones that are going to probably end up being more criminal uh, than that one hush money issue. Now, when you put that all together, you may end up with a indictment that has all of that put together. But as a standalone, I can see why Trump and Cohen initially, if I was putting myself in their mindset, would have felt this is not a high-risk issue, how we're characterizing this, because relatively speaking, low amount of money, and relatively speaking, worst-case scenario, the IRS says, well, okay, that's not a business expense. We don't think it's going to go criminal on us. But in light of everything else now, they're probably revisiting that decision. <laughs> So that brings me to kind of this final, <clears throat> well, and, and there, Patty might have some other follow-ups, but I'm just wondering, um, to tie this together a little bit, you have this organization, you were just saying that, you know, sort of standard practice in terms of everything together. How does RICO fit into something like this? Like, why, when would a prosecutor decide to go down a path of looking at a pattern of you know, uh, racketeering, fraud activity as a part of a kind of ongoing organization versus, you know, looking at just individual violations of tax fraud or bank fraud or money laundering or things like that. I think it goes there very much to what you just said, which is the pattern. You're looking at the overall pattern of what it is that the organization is doing. And so if the overall pattern of what they're doing is all with an illegal um, 
outcome. Uh, the most obvious is what Rico was designed for, which is racketeering. <laughs> so you've got a very corporate-looking organization, good communication, good hierarchy, but their whole business is uh, you know, illegal drug trade, illegal gambling, so that their product is basically illegal. That's a kind of no-brainer for using Rico. The more novel methods of RICO is taking a look at organizations that you know, appear to have legitimate purposes, and yet something that they're doing is systemically so corrupt and so criminal that you can use the RICO statute against them. Um, if I had to wager a guess, I would say that from what we're hearing publicly, again, we only know what reporters have given us, it would appear to me less uh, of a RICO enterprise and more of there are various individual situations where they may have committed crimes. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that would be just sort of a, a gut reaction to it. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, this admission scandal that we just uh, saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, where right. this admissions consulting company was kind of engaging in, in bribery and, and other shenanigans, mm -hmm. um, I think there was a RICO approach to that, which surprised a lot of prosecutors, I think, for the reasons that you mentioned. Right. That, you know, it's not it's not like a mob. <laughs> it was kind of a, a, a legit seeming thing that, you know, was engaging in these um, patterns of activity. But they, they went the RICO route, which was interesting. Um, do you have any closing thoughts, Shan? Like, you know, what... I feel like there's just so much. Patty and I were talking about this before you came on. There's so much, uh, you know, that we're flooded with. And I think especially when it comes to financial stuff, people's eyes can glaze over. I'm, or maybe it's just me because I'm I'm in the middle of doing my taxes right now. But, um, right. you know, it's it's, you know, the hush money stuff get kind of that's that sexy and salacious um, or the Russia collusion is intrigue and spies. But I think uh, it's easy to lose the thread. What what do we need to keep our eye out for on this front, especially since Mueller's investigation has concluded, and to the extent that there are still investigations, you know, this is the thread that's going to be followed both by Congress and uh, potentially by the Southern District of New York. I think for us, what the clues will be uh, in public will be whether or not you see the Southern District or the New York, well, let's break it down a little bit. Southern District could obviously actually return indictments against family members. They don't have any particular protections because uh, Trump is the president right now. So that would be a very obvious clue where they to take action against them. I think- You mean uh, Don Tudor or Jared or Ivanka or things like that? Correct, right. And then I think the other thing to watch for is uh, right now on the tax issue, it looks like it's still with a, potential for criminal referral, but it's still within the civil uh, aspect of the New York State tax authorities. So the thing to watch for there will be whether or not they make a criminal referral. Now, a criminal referral doesn't guarantee there'll be charges made, but it would, it would indicate that the people who know best in the tax arena feel that there's something more to this than just something that requires an audit and a correction on the taxes. So I think those would be two very obvious signs to, to watch for. That last one you were talking about at the state level. Am I correct? That's right. At, at the, correct. At the state level, right. At exactly. the state level. Yeah. Yes. Because we know that, yeah. uh, you know, the states did 
have a case against Paul Manafort that they move forward on kind of based on similar financial activity. So they would have a basis to potentially um, or jurisdiction over certain kinds of financial crimes. Yeah, and I think it's a very interesting phenomenon, what you just mentioned about Manafort, because I think what we're really seeing here is the people often forget, people get so focused on, on the federal role in law enforcement. And of course, the vast majority of law enforcement in our country is really done at the state level, mm-hmm. both, both local local DAs as well as the, near, as well as the state attorney general. So in some ways, that's a very valuable civics reminder for all of us as to what an important role that they play. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the Trump situation with New York State taking a very aggressive role towards that. Uh, I'm not saying that nothing further will come out of um, the Mueller situation, those investigations. But I think the next steps now are really Congress is in some sense a new prosecutor investigator looking at whatever Mueller has found after a long fight as to whether they get to see it or not. Uh, And then similarly, the next step is also in the hands of the state uh, AGs looking at what happened in New York, because after all, Trump's history and businesses are all in New York. Right. And importantly, he has no ability to pardon state crimes. So to the extent that they did pursue charges against Paul Manafort or members of his family, he would not have the latitude that he does at the federal level. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Wow. Well, I feel like I know a lot more, don't you, Patty? <laughs> In terms of uh, oh, where yeah. where this might go, is it maybe this is potentially reassuring for the people who uh, were disappointed <laughs> with the earlier uh, Bar book report? Well, people are eager eager for results, obviously, but I think that they're assured that the investigation continues on so many different levels. Yes. Yeah, I think you know one one thing just just to, as I was, you were saying that it occurred to me too is. Yeah, you know, it's not really that linear. I mean, there, there's a synergy between Congress now and these other investigations. And as Congress, you know, fights to get the Mueller results and conducts their own investigation on that federal level, they're going to be further informed by what's happening at the New York State level too. So that's going to enter into the mix as well as Congress does investigations. You know, and of course, the, the million dollar question is, you know, will they actually consider impeachment? Or not, and then there's the whole political aspect of what harm does that do. But I think um, it, it, it's interesting to think about how might the state investigations actually factor into the congressional investigations. That that is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. That there could be more communication than we realize, or more back and right. forth synergy. Great. Well, let the games begin. Is what I say. <laughs> Thank you so much, Shan. This has been so helpful in uh, breaking down so many different parts of this and um, and how how we might see things unfold moving forward. Really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. No, you're, you're very welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast of On Topic. I've been your guest host, Asha Rangappa, filling in for Renato Mariotti, who will be back next week. Until then, let's stay on topic.